Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with Chef Alon Shia. We discuss the worst turkey sandwich he ever ate, why he starts his broth in a pot of ice, and how he finally got the chance to make pizza with Enzo in Parma. He taught in a very militaristic style, you know, like... Four days, I was only allowed to cut mushrooms, and and then I graduated to cheese, and then eventually I was able to like touch the flour, and and then eventually I was able to actually make pizzas there. Also on today's show, Dan Pashman discusses the food of the Simpsons, and I share my favorite ways to use tahini. But first, it's my interview with food writer and cookbook author Julia Tertian. Julia, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm really good. Uh, Small Victories was a, a fabulous book. And now you've done a book now and again, which is as recipes, but also how to use them for leftovers. And so I thought we'd talk a little bit. I thought there were some great ideas here. Well, thank you. Uh, you, you said you can make a pesto with a leftover arugula salad. I, I just thought that was such an interesting idea. 
Yeah, sort of presto, pesto. Yeah, it, um, that idea, I think, speaks to, I, I think, really the simplicity of so many ideas in the book that you can use these things that you might, you know, not see any more life in, you know, wilted old salad. But if you think of it as the components for a pesto, you know, it's already kind of halfway there. You've got some greens and, and seasoning, and there's even pine nuts in that salad. And so, you know, whizzed all together, you get this great sauce. And then you had another one, which I think is equally simple, but brilliant, uh, leftover tomato sauce, add some chicken stock, you have soup. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that was another super simple one. And just truly the idea of stretching one thing and turning it into another. And, you know, the kind of old idea of, you know, if you have some extra people over, just add a little bit more water to the soup pot. So, <laughs> so that one takes tomato sauce kind of in that direction. You have a romaine and celery salad with buttermilk ranch dressing, which looks great. But then you have a sort of concept of a spicy stir-fried lettuce. So you start with a little ginger and garlic and oil, add the sliced celery, and then slices of romaine leaves. Uh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that was an idea. If, if you've bought maybe a little bit more celery or and or romaine than you use in the salad, um, just a way that's very easy to use them both, but also a bit unexpected. You know, I think especially in America, we don't think of lettuce as something that you cook, um, but it is cooked in different places all over the world. And it's it's great. It kind of transforms the texture. It makes it this, you know, kind of warm, satisfying dish. And I just am always looking for that road to a recipe that's both really simple and also just a little unexpected. You do a pho soup with brisket. I kind of like that idea. <laughs> so that recipe was one that really, really inspired this whole book. And the story behind that is I, I grew up in a Jewish family and we celebrate holidays together as a family. And one year I went to my uh, aunt and uncle's house for, for a Passover Seder. And my aunt had made so much chicken soup and so much brisket that she sent everyone home with leftovers. And my wife, Grace, and I found ourselves eating chicken soup and brisket over and over <laughs> again. And we were getting like a little bit sick of it, even though those are you know, two of my favorite things in the world. And so one night I thought it was like the end of the of the bag of brisket and the end of the container of the soup. And I thought, I can't eat this again. Um, but it was so good and such, you know, great quality food and I wanted to use it. So I, I charred an onion. I added it to the stock with some ginger and um, star anise and cinnamon and, and the flavors you would often find in pho. And then added the sliced brisket to it with some rice noodles and served it with fresh herbs. And Grace, my wife, was like, oh, you know, when did you order takeout? <laughs> and I was like, no, this is the same thing. Thanks we've been a eating. lot. Takeout. Yeah. <laughs> no, I took it as a compliment. And it really was, you know, th these two things we had gotten almost a little bit sick of, and they were totally transformed. And to me, I thought, oh, there's a book in there. So let's just talk about the philosophy of cooking. People always say, well, you know, I want to improvise, you know, I don't want to just follow recipes. And um, I often say, well, you should start by following recipes. But but take us through the thought process. You know, you're, if, if I was talking about uh, music, let's say, I, I'd say, well, here are three concepts. The one, four, five chords, you know, that's basic rock and roll. Or here's a pentatonic scale and here's how you can use it. Could you translate that in food? Give me a couple of things, basic ideas that have some meat on them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So some meat on it. Yeah. Well, or whatever. <laughs> tofu say, on it. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it's such a great question, and I think 
I, I would say the formula I, I go about is, you know, just off the top of my head, I think it's for any meal I'm making, you know, I think it's it can be a little hard to always find all the components in one dish, but I think you can really find them in a whole meal. So I try to have something crunchy and, and something soft, you know, to kind of think of texture. And I would say also salt plus lemon equals always great <laughs> is another formula. I think that can really transform most things. So if you think of, you know, whatever your ideal meal is, if you break that apart, it'll probably have those components. So for me, you know, like I love a roast chicken with a salad and, you know, some wine on the side. So that's, you know, that's got that sort of crispy chicken skin, and you know, that crunch, but also the soft roasted meat inside the bird, you know, the crunch of the salad, the acid of the vinaigrette. It's got all those components, but it's like a super simple meal. You know, pizza has this sort of soft kind of crust under the tomato sauce, but the crispy crust at the edge, um, you know, it's got the salt, it's got the fat from the cheese, you know, so I think if you if you think about the things you already love, I think you can sort of break down the components really easily. Um, do you think you can really learn something about a culture through their food? I absolutely think you can. Um, and it's something I believe in so much. And I think, I think what's most important is, you know, really connecting with whoever made it and understanding what that food means to them. You know, if it's something you've never eaten, maybe you'll learn about a new ingredient or, you know, flavor. And, you know, that can be really exciting. But in terms of really learning about a culture, I think you have to talk to whoever cooked it or read their story or, or listen to it and also kind of trace those ingredients and find out where they're from and, and who grew them. And, you know, I think if we bring that kind of mindset to everything we eat, I mean, we learn so much about each other. And you think about how much you can offer of yourself to someone when you cook them a meal. You know, I was telling you about the the sort of Jewish chicken soup I grew up with. <laughs> and, you know, to me, that bowl of soup represents my entire history. It represents my family and where they came from and where they fled, you know, and the traditions they brought with them. And, yeah, to me, it's my whole family. It's my whole heritage in a bowl. And so when I when I cook that for someone, I'm, I'm not just making you soup. I'm, I'm you know, I'm sharing my everything. Julia, it's been a really pleasure to chat with you. I love your book now and again, and uh, all the best going forward. Well, I really appreciate it, and it was great to talk with you too, Chris. That was Julia Tertian. Her new book is called Now and Again. Go to recipes, inspired menus, and endless ideas for reinventing leftovers. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe and listen whenever you want. New shows go up every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Radio Public, and Spotify. Now it's time to open up the phone lines, take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to be brilliant? Chris, I am so ready to always be brilliant, yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chrissy from Sturbridge. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, sure. We'd love to help you. How can we help you? So um, my question deals with braised meats and stews. I love making braised lamb, and every time I do, they come out, they taste fantastic, but the liquid never has that beautiful deep brown or burgundy color you see in the magazine or in the cookbook. Mine is more of a an ugly, unappetizing yellowish brown. <laughs> I'm using pretty rich red wines, too, so I wanted to know what am I doing wrong. Are you browning the meat and the chicken? I am. So I brown the meats first, and then I saute the vegetables, onions, and kind of all of that, and the herbs, and then I 
put the meat back and I put the red wine in. And I'm doing this all in my Dutch oven too. And then I put it in the oven. Well, a few suggestions. A common trick that a lot of people use is tomato paste. So when you saute your onions, you add a tablespoon or two of tomato paste, maybe two. Cook it so it gets... Caramelized. Yeah, really dark for a few minutes. Uh, And and that'll add color. And also, umami, it has a meaty flavor to it. There is a recipe from Spain, however, and this is how I do stews now, where you don't add the wine at the beginning. You essentially roast the cube meat in a Dutch oven where you've already sauteed some onions, put the meat in uncovered and cook it. Covered for, I think, two hours and uncovered for an hour. And there's no liquid because some liquid will come out of the meat and you get really brown meat. You don't have to brown the meat ahead of time because the heat of the oven will do it. The trick here, though, is to take your wine and reduce it down by a good two-thirds over very gentle simmer. takes about an hour or so. So while you're roasting the meat, do that. Then you get a concentrated wine which solves the problem. If you cook meat in wine, I find the wine sucks the flavor out of the meat and makes it kind of dry. I don't like it. This way, the meat has more meaty flavor, and you end up with a wine tastes better, the meat tastes better, and you will have, because that browning in the bottom of the Dutch oven will be wonderful. I think that sounds wonderful. I just want to suggest one other thing. Um, I also reduce the wine, but I do it at the beginning brown the meat really well and the onions and I do the thing with the tomato paste and then you remove it all from the skillet and you know you put everything in the Dutch oven and then you add the red wine and I just boil the heck out of it I don't do it gently okay and I do reduce it by two-thirds and I add usually some chicken broth mine always comes out I feel like it's got terrific depth of flavor and the meat is really tender and everything okay there's one other trick we just tested today at Milk Street you can use miso uh, in water as oh, a basic okay. stock. A little red miso with water, oh, okay. and you can add spices, but just those things as a base for a stew or a braise is actually delicious. And the meat will give off okay. its own flavor And a white anyway. miso in water for poultry. Right. But that's red miso is oh, a wonderful okay. flavoring ingredient. And also, the sauce will be a nice, deep, burnt orange color. Yeah. So. Okay. Make sure you're browning things well, too. And the tomato paste, I agree, really helps. Okay, I will do that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Alan, and uh, I'm quite privileged to be speaking to you, Chris. (laughs) I don't know. That's a matter of opinion Very few people probably share that opinion. (laughs) uh, It's a privilege to chat with you. How can we help you? Well, um, I was actually quite thrilled to receive my first issue of Milk Street. And on the first page, I see Pie Crust Perfect, and that's the first article I went to. And I'm reading, and I see in bold letters, don't skip the sour cream. So my question basically is based on kosher laws. Whenever we have a meat meal, we are not permitted to eat dairy together with meat. Or even after the meat meal, we would have to wait six hours before we could have anything dairy. So if I wanted to make a pie that I could eat after a meat meal, I would need to have a substitute for butter, which could probably be easy to find, but I'm not so sure that I could find a suitable non-dairy substitute for sour cream. Well, in that recipe, we only used, I think, two tablespoons of sour cream. And you could, if you wanted, just eliminate that. Two tablespoons of butter added instead of the sour cream, that would be fine. If you can't use butter, there are recipes using vegetable oil pie crust. 
I don't love them because they come out like cookie Heavy. dough. Heavier, I think. Yeah, they're kind of crispy. They're not flaky. They're not tender. But they do work. I haven't tried any of the new vegetable shortenings that are, you know, different. Have you tried them, Chris? Yeah, that's the other thing you could use. The new Crisco that doesn't have trans fats, and you can make a lovely pie dough with that. Yeah, very flaky. very flaky. That recipe depended on cornstarch and water. Which is so interesting. And you cooked it into a gel and then froze it for 10 minutes so it was chilled. Do you think that would make a difference yes. if you added that and used Crisco? If you did that with Crisco, I think it would be great. I think that's the solution here. Just substitute Crisco for butter. Crisco for butter and extra Crisco for the uh, amount of uh, sour cream. Sour cream. Yeah. yeah, that should work And do fine. the cornstarch thing. It'll be fine. In fact, it may actually be flakier than butter. It probably will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's great. I mean, uh, thank you very much for the suggestion. Pleasure. I will actually let you or your magazine know how it worked out. Oh, that would be great. Alan, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, take care. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Nick Cholas from Chicago. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. I need some advice from you guys because I'm having a party this weekend, and I happened on a 12-pound goose that I got for a real bargain, and I need your advice how to cook it. Um, I have a couple uh, suggestions. There's a lot of fat under the skin. I've cooked a goose by simmering it in water for about 40 minutes, uh, just a very slow simmer, Take it out, let it cool off, dry it, and then roast it. And you get rid of a lot of that extra fat. The other way I've done it is the old Fanny Farmer method from 1896 is where you take the breasts off and cook those, saute those essentially. You can saute them and then finish them in a low oven. And then the dark meat you roast because the dark meat and the breast meat are going to cook, cook very at different differently. times. Or you could confit the legs because yes. you'll have enough goose fat maybe you know, that gets rendered out or you pull out all the little globs of goose fat and then you can melt them down and then you can... Have you ever made confit before? I haven't actually, no. Essentially what it is is low and slow cooking in its own fat, which is absolutely delicious. And you throw in some garlic and thyme and you just let it cook slowly in fat till it's tender. So you could do that with the legs as well. You'd have to go out and buy okay. some. You'd probably have to buy yeah. some excess fat. I think the simplest method is simmer for 40 minutes in water, take it out, and then finish it in an oven. You know, Ariane Degain poaches it a lot longer than that. She even does it a day ahead. So she'll take it, put it breast side down, and she sautés up some vegetables, adds white wine, chicken broth, some water in a roasting pan on top of the stove. You need something large. And puts it in there about two-thirds submerged and then covers it and cooks it, you know, breast side down for the, like, first hour and then turns it over for another couple hours until it's tender when you prick it with a knife and then takes it right out, dries it, and roasts it in a hot oven for about 30 minutes. Hmm, that's a good idea. You could also do it a day ahead, cool it, save the broth. All the fat will come to the top. You can reduce down the broth and make a nice sauce out of it. Yeah, I like doing it a day ahead. That way it's all prepared ahead of time. Yeah. You know what I would do is go, because Chris seems to agree that it's really a good idea to poach to begin with, to get rid of that excess fat. If you want, because Arian Degan, who has D'Artagnan, are you aware of that website? No, I'm not. Okay. She sells goose and wild everything and 
this is how she cooks her goose. And when I one time I did um, goose with Julia Child, and she also poached it first before she roasted. She it. stole my idea, man. Oh, 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 whoops. Uh, whoops. Whoops. Who came maybe, first? maybe. The Julia or the Chris? I guess the Julia. I think the Julia. Okay, well, yeah. now I'm going to steal her idea, too. Okay, well, go on the D'Artagnan website because it will give you all the details. Sounds and drink good. a couple bottles of wine. Yeah, and all drink right. a couple bottles of wine. All right, give the Julia Child Method a shot. Will do. Yeah, uh, slash Ariane, <laughs> slash Chris Kimball. Right. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Okay. Nice Thank you. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my interview with Alon Shaya, chef and author of Shaya, an odyssey of food, my journey back to Israel. That's right after the break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today, Elon Shia is an award-winning chef in New Orleans, but his success wasn't always a given. Elon, how are you? I'm great, Chris. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing well. Um, you know, when I pick up a cookbook, most of the time it's happy days are here again, right? They're talking about <laughs> their wonderful family or the great food. And your book certainly has a fair amount of that. But it also, it's called An Odyssey of Food, My Journey Back to Israel. And it is an odyssey. So let's start with your grandparents. One of your grandfathers was sent to the front lines from Romania during the Second World War. Could you just start there? Yeah. Um, when I set out to write the book, I, I kind of began asking all of these questions that I needed answers to about my family. So I learned a lot that my grandfather was a Christian and he married a, a Jewish woman, which was my, my grandmother. When World War II really started to take hold in Eastern Europe and the Germans were coming into Romania. My grandfather was, you know, he, they found out that he was married to a Jewish woman. And as punishment for that, he was sent to fight on the Russian border, you know, fight alongside the Germans. And so he uh, went there and realized what a horrible situation that he was 
in and tried to escape, fled into the woods, and uh, was shot and captured by Russian troops and then put into a prison of war camp and uh, later died there of disease. And then your, your, I think your grandfather on the other side lived in Sofia, right, in Bulgaria, and yes. narrowly escaped a similar fate, uh, the camps, and then ended up in Jerusalem in the late 40s. So yeah. That, and then your father, your father also had kind of a rough childhood as well, right? Yeah. You know, you're talking about Eastern Europe and Jewish families during Hitler's reign, and, and it was not an easy life for any of them. My, my father escaped communist Romania for Israel and then eventually left Israel to come to America. And he actually moved to America two years before my mother and my sister and I did so that he could raise up enough money to fly us out. So uh, your, your dad leaves the family at some point, uh, but you'd see him on fishing trips. And you you describe, it's the little details that always are so telling, but you you remember, among other things, the soggy sandwiches because he'd have a cooler, right, with the ice. Yeah. Uh, by the time you get around to eat the sandwich, they were kind of soaked through, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, a, a year after my sister and mother and I moved to America, my parents divorced, and my mother was then raising us on our own. My father, we would go on these fishing trips outside of Margate, and we would, uh, you know, he would put me in this little, like, 12-foot boat and during those times kind of, like, tell all of the stories about, you know, why him and my mom weren't together again and kind of how hard of a life he had and how much he loved me, but how he had to really, you know, fight for every little thing. And so there were kind of these like miserable times for me where I would just have to sit there and listen. And, you know, eventually we would like low tide would come and we'd be like stuck in mud. And so we'd be like sitting there for three and a half hours, you know, with no water and just talking. And uh, we would eat these, um, turkey sandwiches that my dad made and would put in the Ziploc bags. But inevitably, like, right. the, the water would leak into them and they'd be, like, floating around in the ice in the cooler. And, and like, nothing has ever stuck to the roof of your mouth more than <laughs> a wet, soggy, white bread turkey sandwich with mayonnaise. And so, like, I – one of my vivid memories is just kind of, like, getting my finger, like, covered in, like, fish guts and, like, scraping this – soggy turkey sandwich off the top of my mouth. But then we would catch all these small little fish and we would bring them back to the house. And I would watch my dad take them, clean them, dust them in a little bit of flour and pan fry them in butter and just get them all golden brown. And then we would pick the the meat off of the bones with our hands and kind of dip it in that brown butter with chopped parsley and lemon. And I just remember being so impressed by my dad at that moment, like by the way he would cook those fish. So every time I would sign up to go on one of these fishing trips, you know, I knew the end result, and it was going to be these beautifully fried fish that I would be able to eat. 
and and that was worth it to me. So so you start out, let's talk about you now. So you start out and one of your jobs, I think, I love this story. They sent you across the street to a Rite Aid or something. Yeah. So <laughs> one of my first jobs was at this kosher butcher shop. And I, I told them I was 16 years old, but I was 13 years old. And I needed money to buy cigarettes and cheesesteaks when I got out of school. So I, I started working there on the weekends, and I would be sweeping the aisles and stocking shelves. And, and you know, they could tell that I really loved food and I was really passionate about it. But they would send me on all these kind of like impossible missions that <laughs> I would later learn they were just messing with me. But at one point, I had to walk down the street to the Rite Aid and ask the woman behind the register, who also happened to be my next-door neighbor and one of my mom's friends, <laughs> for 10 feet of fallopian tube. <laughs> and this is like, you know, pre-seventh grade for me, right? Like, I'm, I'm not I, – I, I hadn't taken health ed yet. So I wasn't – I didn't know what the fallopian tube was. I, I just knew that I was going to go to Rite Aid and pick up several feet of it. And it was many embarrassing moments like that. You know, I would do I knew that I would be set up at times, but I would do it anyway just so that I could like continue to get the attention from them. Yeah. So that they would let me do more stuff with food. You end up in New Orleans at Haras making mac and cheese for 5,000 people as you said. But you were also in charge of the chocolate fountain at the dessert bar. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess you said a lot of sort of detritus, a lot of garbage ended up in that fountain. You had to constantly clean it out. Yeah. I was the chef of the buffet at Harris when I first moved to New Orleans. And the the buffet would serve about 5,000 people on a busy day. It's a big operation. And I'm 23 years old. I'm like here in New Orleans ready to learn about Cajun and Creole food. And the only job I could get was at, at Harris Buffet. Well, you also had an experience uh, after Katrina there you cooked for people at a, at a hospital, for example. You cooked massive amounts of red beans and rice and, and uh, showed up at the hospital just to feed people, and you did that day after day. Yeah. You know, Katrina really changed my life, and it reminded me of what people want from food. And here I am in the parking lot of this looted-out Walmart with a big pot of really bad red beans and rice because there was no produce or or meat, or smoked sausage to put in there. Everything was completely rotten. And I would make these like vegetarian red beans and rice, and I'd serve them to first responders and people that were hungry. And it made such a huge impression on them because they were able to get a hot meal. And it reminded me of why I cooked in the first place from a young age, because it was usually the only trick up my sleeve. Like food was the way that I brought joy to people and that I got positive reactions from people even throughout my kind of hellish childhood as a teenager when I would cook I would I would get a seat at the table and um, here I was post Katrina feeling that exact same emotion and it it really inspired me to then move to Italy to learn how to cook from Italian grandmothers because that that that's what was kind of speaking to me at the time you also talked about Vincenzo, right? And you, you got a job in his pizzeria, I believe. Uh, and you thought the first day you'd be walking and making pizzas, right? 
Yeah, I thought I would walk into this <laughs> or not. pizzeria in Parma and uh, Enzo, the pizzaiolo, would, you know, he, he did take me under his wing, but he taught in a very militaristic style and you had to really get through every level before you could get to the next one. So, you know, like mushrooms was four days, you know, like <laughs> I, four days I was only allowed to cut mushrooms and and then I graduated to cheese and then eventually I was able to like touch the flour and make the dough with him and then eventually I was able to actually make pizzas there. Okay, let's get to cooking now. So uh, you starred a broth recipe in a pot full of ice. Yes. This is something that I learned in Italy about how to make a really good clear broth. What I learned was that you can take, say it's duck bones, and you have a big pot full of duck bones, and you add a bunch of ice and a little bit of water to it, and you let it sit overnight just out at room temperature, and the ice will keep it cold, but eventually it will melt throughout the night, and all of the blood will leach out of the Hmm. carcasses. Then when you turn the heat on, the blood has all of these proteins that kind of soak up all the impurities in the water and bring it up to the top and kind of create their own raft. So I'm sure you've seen when you make broth, like you skim that foam that rises to the top. Or you use egg whites to trap it. Right. Well, the the, the foam is usually because of of the blood. So the more blood you have in there in the water – the more foam comes up and the more impurities are absorbed and you get an extremely clear broth. And and that's the method that I learned to make brodo and terza, which means broth in thirds. And it's what they serve the Annalini and brodo in, mm-hmm. in Parma. I always wondered why that tasted so good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you Now let's switch over to the opposite side. You sous vide turkey. Yeah, it's true. I I do sous vide my turkey breast. (laughs) So defend um, yourself. (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I I think that turkey breast especially dries out and gets that kind of squeaky texture very easily. And sous videing is – it sounds really fancy. It's really not that fancy. It's just cooking something very slowly and very evenly. And I find that I can do that with a turkey breast and leave the skin on and cook it to a specific temperature very slowly, whereas the proteins are never being forced to denature at a rapid pace like it would be if you were flashing it in a, in a 500-degree oven. And so the juices really stay in the meat. And when then after you pull it out of the bag – you can then put it in a broiler and get the skin really beautiful and crispy and have the meat just perfectly cooked. So you, I believe, went back to Israel to to cook with your grandmother her recipes. Is that correct at some time? Yeah. When I had just moved to New Orleans in, in 2003, I had a chance to go back to Israel to see my grandmother for the last time because she was didn't, knew she didn't have much time left. And uh, I saw this as an opportunity to really kind of reconnect with her about the foods that she would cook for me when I was a kid and that we would cook together. And she had already thought about that and already had 
a plan in her head that uh, she was going to teach me every single recipe that she knew how to make during this trip. And so I would uh, see her in the morning and she would give me a list of things to go to the market and buy. And I would walk to the markets in Jaffa and, you know, pick up the meats and the produce and the cheeses. And I would come back and I would begin cooking all of these things and she would give me direction. And I would take teaspoons of something and bring them back into the bedroom where she was and she'd taste it and tell me what I needed to adjust. And I really documented every last bit of this experience in a notebook as I was doing it. And when I opened Shia in New Orleans, that journal of recipes that I got from my grandmother really served as the opening menu, part of it. And it was just a really special when my mother came to eat there for the first time. You know, she tasted the lutenitsa, which is this this puree of roasted peppers and eggplants and tomato. And my mom just started to cry. And she was like, your Safta would have been really proud to have seen this happen. Elon, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. And I uh, hope to have you back on Milk Street sometime soon. Thank you, Chris. That was chef and author Alon Shaya. His new book is entitled Shaya, An Odyssey of Food, My Journey Back to Israel. Now it's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, oven poached salmon. Catherine, how are you? I'm great, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Um, you know, I used to get lessons from a French cooking teacher back in the early 70s. And one of the lessons I learned was how to poach fish. Now, in those days, I had the big metal fish poacher with a tray that comes out. You make a court bouillon, which was a flavored fish broth. It was, a, it was a big deal. And I also thought that poaching fish, a lot of the flavor in the fish leached out into the court bouillon anyway. It wasn't a great method. So I asked you not too long ago to come up with a better way for quote-unquote poaching fish. So what are we going to do? So, Chris, we are going to take poaching to the oven. And rather than digging around for our old fish poacher, we're simply going to marinate a whole side of salmon in a little soy sauce. Then we use a foil sling and a rimmed baking sheet and we toss it in the oven. Now, one of the tricks here is instead of simmering it in like a court bouillon where the flavor might leach out, we just douse it in vermouth. So that really amps up the flavor and when we cover the whole pan with foil, that creates steam so it can quote unquote poach in the oven. So it's oven-steamed salmon. I mean, to be technical. Techn technically, yes, but we're referring to it as oven-poached. And just like a traditional poached salmon, you'd serve it with a sauce made from that cooking liquid. So we take a little bit of that vermouth salmon juice delicious cooking liquid, we add some dill, we add some butter, and then serve it with lemon wedges. And I have to say, Chris, despite how easy it is, it's pretty impressive when you serve your guests a whole side of salmon. You eat with your eyes. Catherine, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. You can find this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman and I discuss the food of The Simpsons. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. 
This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Mill Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Moulton and I will be answering a few more of your culinary questions. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a uh, new batch of questions? Yes, Chris. I am very ready. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Brendan. Hi, Brendan. Where are you calling from? Fresno, California. How can we help you today? Well, I have a question about making a strawberry cake you might be familiar with. I've made it multiple times, and the first few times that I've made it, it was delicious, but the cake texture came out really dense. And I was uh, actually out of town um, at my mom's house, and I was making it again, and she only had a stand mixer that had, instead of a paddle attachment, all it had was whisk attachment. And when I used that attachment, I don't know if it was that or what happened, but the cake came out perfect. It was really nice and light and fluffy. So I'm just wondering, could that have done something different, or was there something else going on maybe that made it light and fluffy? What's the recipe? Are you beating whole eggs with sugar to start, or what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I think that's the answer right that's there. That's the answer. What did you used to use before you used a whisk? Just a spoon? The paddle or? attachment. The paddle. Oh, a paddle attachment, yeah. No, it's absolutely yeah. the whisk. Right. The whisk will incorporate more air, and this cake depends in part on incorporating air into the whole eggs and the sugar to get a nice, light texture to yeah. them. The paddle is good for batters that don't really depend on incorporating a lot of air. Right. I so, mean, especially when you have a high percentage of eggs, that's sort of part of their role there is to add leavening, you know, they just naturally without a leavener. I imagine there's a leavener in the recipe too. Yeah, baking uh, powder. Yeah. You ended yeah. up using the right tool for the job. Right. <laughs> the recipe called the for a paddle? That's silly. Yeah, the recipe calls for a paddle, you know, and that, I don't know. You know, one other thing I was thinking was because it says to uh, microwave the strawberries and then strain them and then reduce them into a syrup and down to, I think, a quarter cup or whatever. And I was wondering maybe in the past, if I didn't reduce the liquid enough and it was too much liquid, could that have something to do with it? Or or no, is it just the... No, but you the said the difference liquid. was between using a paddle and using a whisk in the beater, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it. were all other things the same? Yeah, well, like I was saying, the, the only other thing that it could have been was maybe the moisture content of that strawberry syrup no. was lower. No. Would that make a difference? Not really. I don't think it would make that much of a difference. I, I mean, think. if you had a cup of liquid versus a quarter, that might make a difference. Yes. But it sounds like you're talking about a tablespoon or two, right? Difference. Yeah, a couple yeah. tablespoons. No, yeah. that wouldn't it's, matter. It's, right? it's the whisk. It's the whisk. The question is, do you have a stand mixer with a whisk attachment? Oh, yeah, I definitely yeah. do. Oh, good. Well, I'll be using the whisk from now on. You should yeah. be. Yay. That was easy. That was much simpler yeah. than other that was, things. That was an we, easy one. Yeah. Thanks, right. Brandon. Thanks for calling. Well, I'm, I'm glad you helped me. Pleasure. Thank you very much.
You're listening to Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, just give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Holly Stark. Hi, Holly Stark. Where are you from? Newark, Ohio. And how can we help you? This is such an honor. I watch you both, oh. you and Sarah, all the time. Well, thank you. Uh, so here's my question. How do I know what to brown first? The protein, whatever it might be, or the aromatics? I see each done first for different recipes, but I don't understand why. So that when I am cooking my own food without a recipe, I would like to know the difference. When do you brown the aromatics first? And when do you brown the protein first? This is a classic French question. No, you should let me go first. So I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, because I know what you're going to say. Well, I know what you're going to say, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. I always brown the protein (laughs) first because then when you take it out, you got all those brown bits in the bottom, and vegetables tend to have quite a lot of liquid. So they sort of start deglazing the pan a bit. And sometimes I'll even put the lid on after I add the vegetables to get that steam going to scrape up the brown bits. And then after the steam evaporates, they'll brown. So I start with the protein and then go with the vegetables. Now, Chris? Well, no, up until Milk Street, I would Up until he gave I, up all, you know, <laughs> French culture. Yeah. I've thrown out 500 years cooking. of Northern European cooking. Yeah. Well, that's true. I would do the same. I would say a lot of recipes, however... You don't need to brown the meat. The reason is you're adding more umami flavor to a dish. And the way I cook these days, I don't really want more umami. I want a a lot of other flavors as well. For example, if you do a stew, you can leave the top off and let the heat of the oven brown the meat if there's not too much liquid in it. I saw that show. Yeah, and so there's a famous Tuscan beef dish that does that. So, or I use less meat because meat's more of a flavoring for me than it is the main course. So, yes, meat first, sofrito, the onions, et cetera, second. But in many cases, don't you, bother you, you don't actually need to brown the meat. I don't agree with that, but that's okay. So I, I agree with that totally with any kind of a stew. I get that. But let's say you're doing a ground protein. It could be hamburger, turkey, lamb. Do you generally brown it first as well and then the aromatics? Because it seems to me it's easy if you brown it and you take it out and then you're going to braise it. You know, and the only example I can think of like bolognese uh, is ground protein. It's like you don't take that out after you brown it. Generally. No, well, if you take a bolognese, for example, you don't really want to brown it directly in the pan because it's going to get hard and It is. Nasty. It's because you've got little teeny right. weeny pieces of meat. Right. I agree with that. You don't want to brown ground meat right. because then you've dried it out. So you oh, just want okay. to get it... Well, I do that wrong. Okay. You want to get it till it's lost its color. It's lost its pinkness. So in that case, yeah, I might start with some onions and get them right. softened and then add the ground meat and then by the time it's turned... It's lost its pinkness. The onions will have cooked a little more. Yeah, the ground meat, you're not trying to brown it to create a Maillard reaction, which are those fond at the bottom of the pan, because then it would be cooked to over 200 degrees, and it would be tough. Right. I know all these terms because I watch you both religiously. So thank you for, I've just learned so much watching your shows. Well, good. Thank you for calling. Our pleasure. Thank you. Holly, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Here is this week's Milk Street Basic. It's no secret that here at Milk Street, we're big fans of tahini, the Middle Eastern sesame paste. It adds a lot of body to all sorts of dishes, sweet and savory. Here are a few new ways to use tahini at home. First, spread it on cauliflower or broccoli, season with salt and pepper, and then roast the vegetables in a very hot oven, 475, until well browned about half an hour. Toss the roasted cauliflower or broccoli with a handful of chopped cilantro or parsley and chopped cashews. Or you can make a flavored butter to smear on roast fish or chicken. Blend two tablespoons tahini with two tablespoons of softened salted butter. Then mix in some fresh herbs and a teaspoon of lemon zest. Third, swap out peanut butter in your next peanut butter and jam sandwich and use tahini instead. It's really good with multigrain breads and with raspberry or apricot jam. Finally, use tahini on your oatmeal. A drizzle adds richness, also pairs well with maple syrup or brown sugar. For more culinary inspiration, please go to 177milkstreet.com. Now it's time for Dan Pashman, who always has a very curious view of the world of cooking. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Chris. I uh, was recently watching one of my all-time favorite TV shows, The Simpsons. Are you a Simpsons fan? I, it's one of my favorite shows. Do you have an all-time favorite food-related episode or moment from The Simpsons? Yes. Uh, th- there was sort of an alternate reality show of some kind, and th- one of them was Raining Donuts. Do you remember that? Yes, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm so, see, Chris, you know, every once in a while, like, I get that the conceit of our conversations yeah. here is that we're sort of an odd couple, but so, actually, we're, you know, sometimes we're really two peas in a pod. And he was going through rejecting all these possible universes. Yes, And, and yes, he rejected that, that, the, the raining donuts without thinking about it. <laughs> right. That, it's, it's one of the, that is my all-time favorite Simpsons joke. It's from a Halloween episode, and Homer's trying to fix a toaster, and he keeps getting electrocuted and sent to the past. <laughs> The third time he gets sent back to the present after doing something in the dinosaur age, he comes back to the present. He comes upstairs to his living room. He lives in a mansion. The kids are all sitting nicely at the table. Uh, There's a beautiful dinner set. Marge is dressed very nicely, and the kids say, Good good afternoon, Father. Will will we be taking the new Lexus to Aunt Patty and Aunt Selma's funeral? (laughs) (laughs) And Homer says, Nice house. Well-behaved kids, luxury car, dead sisters-in-law. I've hit the jackpot. And he sits down at dinner and says, Marge, would you please pass me a donut? And she says, what are donuts? Yeah, what is a donut? And Homer flips out, starts screaming, runs screaming from the room back to the basement. And after he's left, Marge looks outside and says, oh, look, it's raining. And donuts are falling from the sky. Um, there's so many great Simpsons food jokes. Food is such a recurring theme, of course, with the character of Homer, but also there's a great episode where Marge and Bart and Lisa become food bloggers and it sort of lampoons fancy food bloggers and pretentiousness in food. So The Simpsons, food, a hallmark part of the show. I had the extraordinary opportunity to go to L.A. and hang out in The Simpsons writer's room. Really? Yes, to learn more about the role of food on the show and also behind the scenes. So tell me, tell me. Well, so TV writers are notoriously food-obsessed people. But one of the most interesting things, I I had the opportunity to chat with Matt Groening, who's the creator of The Simpsons, and he told me that the advances in animation technology have changed the types of food jokes that they can make on The Simpsons. Now, I don't understand that. How does that work? 
so in the very early days of the show, it was almost a running joke that, that, that when the family was sitting down at the table, they were eating slop. Because that was really like that was the most detailed thing they could animate. Oh, I see. Then they got to the point with animation that they could do like a ribeye and you could animate that. Now with digital technology, they can animate the tiniest differences in rolls of sushi. Right. They can even have a menu with very small lettering that may only show on the screen for a split second, but it's the kind of thing that fans will pause and then take a screen capture of and share on social media and obsess over all the little jokes that are hidden in that menu that was only on the screen for a split second. So it has opened up all these new venues for food jokes. So instead of worrying about the basic plot and character development, they're now going down the rabbit hole of insane behind-the-scenes jokes in the menus on the show. Right, right. Well, I wouldn't say instead, but I would say in addition to. So it's almost as if, like, there are now more different layers of jokes on The Simpsons and food jokes in particular because of advances in animation technology. Now they can hide, they can nest a joke within a joke within a joke. So where does this lead us to? A show within a show within a show? Yeah, and and I, and I think that we can even see a, a future when animation could become so detailed that you will have to almost watch parts of an episode either in slow motion or freeze frames and then go on social media and look at all the screen grabs of the tiniest details of things that you hadn't noticed when the show aired, but that they can now add in all these teeny tiny jokes, uh, especially with regard to food that you might not have noticed before. And then 10 years from now, everyone's going to say, let's go back to the era when they ate slop because the show was better. Right. <laughs> exactly. Dan Pashman, behind the scenes at uh, The Simpsons. I think we should watch that show more closely for the inside jokes. Let it rain donuts, Chris. Now, now that's a slogan I can get behind. <laughs> that was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. You know, Dan Pashman and I both chose the same Simpsons episode as our all-time favorite, the one about donuts raining from the sky. But the Simpsons plots often revolved around food, from the Krusty Burger Rib Witch to the Flaming Mo Cocktail to the time Homer thinks he has fugu poisoning. In that episode, thinking he's about to die, he vows to live life to the fullest. But he soon returns to watching bowling and eating pork rinds. Well, there is a lot of Homer Simpson in all of us. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in late, you can find Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or Radio Public. Please remember to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every single episode downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new book, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet, and on Facebook, we're Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzava. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. 
Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.